Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 217, My Plan is Better Than Your Plan. Last time, the island of Madagascar got moved to the top of the British cabinet's concerns as the Japanese had entered the war. Suddenly, the question of getting men and supplies to the Eastern Empire, not to mention North Africa, to keep Rommel away from Egypt, was real enough to make plans and choose force commanders. Problem was, there was very little about the island the British knew of. As for the French, very few of the free French with de Gaulle had actually ever been on the island, so information was gathered about what the French went through when they first took possession of it, after the British had left to focus on Egypt. Like most islands, Madagascar has several smaller islands around it, but both the main island and its satellites had been a part of the supercontinent, Goana. The main island split from the African continent about 180 million years ago and then was parted from the Indian subcontinent about 90 million years ago. As far as experts can tell, the first people to settle on the island were not from Africa, but were Austronesian peoples from Indonesia. This was about the first millennium AD, and only in the 9th century did Bantu people cross over from East Africa. The largest group of these peoples were the Marina, and so by the early 19th century, most of the island was ruled by them, one leader after another under the banner of the Kingdom of Madagascar. As covered last time, British interest in Madagascar waned after the Suez Canal was finished in the 1870s which left France to take control. Not that it was easy, as the Malagasy were quite happy to rule themselves and resisted any who tried to change that. Still, technology will usually win out, and the Kingdom of Madagascar came to an end in 1897, when France officially annexed it. As for independence, that did not come until the 1960s, so for this story, it is a French possession But would it stay that way? Churchill and his cabinet decided, no. When France took control, they needed 15,000 soldiers, a large amount of ships, and nine months to fight their way to the capital. Then Tanatarif, now Antananavrio, located in the heart of the island, just north of its very center. Now, because of French superior military technology, at the end of nine months, They had only lost 20 men, with another 100 wounded. However, disease took another 6,000 French troops. And all those microscopic killers were still around in 1942. And of course, the Vichy French, should they resist, would be another hurdle. The British very quickly pictured needing a massive force just at a moment when they were stretched thin, trying to safeguard what they had from Rommel, and now the Japanese Empire. It's not too hard to imagine that when France fell to Nazi Germany, many Malagasy hoped for the return of freedom, but it was not to be. When Paris fell, the islanders opposed Vichy leadership, so the man representing Vichy, Copé, was replaced by the more reliable, politically speaking, Leon Kayla, the new governor-general. And right away, Kayla got to work, with a visceral and brisk campaign. It helped the Vichy cause that back on July 29, 1940, Britain placed Madagascar 
under a maritime blockade. A very good one, it must be said. Soon exports of all kinds ceased and food shortages became common. So when Kayla went around the island and he told all that Britain had let the French down in her hour of need and would probably do the same to the Malagasy, that message sank in. Then Kayla put out that no British vessels, warships, or merchants could come within 20 miles of the island. This sounded good to the Malagasy. But almost a year later, Kayla retired due to age and was replaced by Armand Annette, a follower and believer of Pétain. This became official in April 1941. And if Annette needed to prove his loyalty to Vichy, he did so by supplying pro-Vichy forces in the colonial port of Djibouti, in then-French Somaliland. Annette had been given a few fighter planes, some bombers, a small group of warships and submarines. Those he was saving for the British. Still, he helped French Somaliland hold out a bit longer. Now, here it gets strange, and you will have to judge Churchill, a man of the previous generation, for being clever or not. As Operation Ironclad was firming up, that is, the seizure of the port of Diego Suarez Bay, an intelligence report was written. It said that Annette would hardly make a move without checking with Vichy, which was good, in British eyes, as any delay to get orders may help the invaders. But more than that, and here's where Churchill let the concept of being a good egg get in the way. The Prime Minister told his cabinet that he did not think Annette would resist too strongly. And why? Because his wife Clementine had met Annette on a train somewhere once and described him as a good chap, which in their time meant he was smooth, a good talker, pleasant to spend time with over dinner or drinks. How this morphed in the Prime Minister's head that he, Annette, was worldly enough not to oppose British forces escapes the imagination. But time would tell. But what also pushed Churchill in being a two-bit optimistic about any welcome the British could expect was a message from an Anglican bishop on the island. First, he spelled out that the British blockade had crippled the people. So, according to this Reverend Vernon, if approached in the right spirit, the Madagascar government might enter into an economic agreement with Britain or South Africa. So, it came down to getting this done right and getting it done quickly, before the Japanese could respond. Hence, Churchill told Lord Mountbatten, Chief of Combined Operations, to create a plan which might lead to success without a shot being fired, but which would not prejudice success in the event of it being impossible to avoid active resistance. Good luck with that. A rather tall order, and we, you and I, dear listeners, have been at this long enough to know that Churchill should have known that he and his would meet resistance, that his would have to go in shooting, but in desperation, as in what we want to believe, skewed his thinking. And it's a strong possibility that Churchill knew his history of the Malagasy people, that during the Great War, some 46,000 of their troops fought for France. That fighting got 2,000 of them killed. And after the war, an independence movement started to grow in strength. But when war came in 1939, 
the Malagasy were wise enough to stick with France. Indeed, when France surrendered to Nazi Germany, about 34,000 Malagasy troops were in France to help defend it. And there were another 72,000 local troops on Madagascar itself that had been willing to go as well. At the very least, they would be just as determined to defend their home island. The other unknown was the mindset of the Senegalese troops on the island. They had been on their way to French Indochina in August 1940, but the British blockade made that voyage come to an end, so they were still on Madagascar. How would they react when the British came? Given all this, and more, the joint planners wisely decided to limit their operations to the capture of Diego Suarez Bay, and if necessary, the taking of the island's other major ports, Mahunga and Tamatave, and getting down to brass tacks, on December 23, 1941, the forest commanders of Operation Bonus were appointed. For the Navy, it would be CNC of the operation, Rear Admiral T.B. Drew. In charge of the land forces would be Major General Bob Sturgis. He would lead the 102nd Royal Marine Brigade, the 36th Brigade, two battalions of Army Commandos, and a mobile Naval Defense Unit. Now, Sturgis had been at Gallipoli in 1915, thus he was already in overdrive, as in building his team and communicating with them so another disaster would be avoided. As the plan stood now, the JPS told Drew and Sturgis that they would land on the western coast and make for Atsirain, the port city on the southern shore of the massive bay. So they would land, secure a beachhead, and then need two, maybe three days to take the port city. As for those other cities, like Mahunga on the west coast, but 200 miles or so to the south, and Tamatave on the east coast, but about 300 miles due south of the main bay, if they needed to be captured as well to secure the bay, then that would follow next. But the force commanders, Drew and Sturgis, did not like this. Not at all. First, speed was paramount. Whatever troops landed first needed to hightail it to Diego Suarez Bay. Further, there was a substantial French airbase only 12 air miles from the supposed landing zone. So, without substantial air support from the British, this could end before it even got started. Then there was General de Gaulle's plan, which he submitted to the Chiefs of Staff. In his plan, Diego Suarez would only be blockaded by the British Royal Navy. Next, the main landings would be done at Majunga, modern-day Mahajanga, again about 200 miles or 320 kilometers southwest of the bay. From there, the forces would move out quicksmart to the southeast and take the capital, Tanadnariv, modern-day Antanavrivo, or as the locals called it, Tana, which we shall adopt from here on out. Not only was it the capital, but also the largest city on Madagascar. Thus would the administration of the island suffer a severe blow. Further, all the bridges between where the troops landed and the capital would be captured by free French or allied parachutists. And once the capital had fallen into free French hands, they would then drive north and take the bay from inland. 
And lastly, free French troops would make up the majority of the attacking forces. The British were only expected to provide air and naval support. The JPS had to acknowledge that de Gaulle's plan had merit, because the Diego Suarez area held Vichy's largest military base and most of its troops. If they should resist seeing British or Commonwealth troops, well, this could go pear-shaped very quickly. Whereas Manhunga, de Gaulle's landing zone, was a civilian port, and thus less protected. And hopefully, all of this would be moot, as the capture of the capital would cause Annette's administration to collapse. Added on to this, the cabinet and chiefs of staff had to admit that British forces were stretched thin at the moment. Rommel was causing all kinds of hell, and now that the Japanese were in the war, was Singapore safe? More men needed to go there. And then someone in a uniform used the phrase, probably in a whisper, in regards to Madagascar, secondary operation. General Alan Brooke, chief of the Imperial General Staff, added his might by saying, you know, for now, let's leave it in Vichy hands. It was a reasonable gamble at this point. Besides, their troops were needed in current combat zones, and likely combat zones in the near future, thanks to the Japanese. This led to the Chiefs of Staff and the Joint Planners meeting once a week in December and early January 1942, and that right there was the game. Either a plan existed and it was moved on, or it was talked about, and nothing moved. By the end of January 1942, Operation Bonus was officially canceled. And yet, there was still the wild card, that is, General Charles de Gaulle. He continued to press until the Foreign Office had to sit him down on February 19, 1942, and say, We only have so many men and other resources. We simply do not have what it takes to pull this off. To wit, General de Gaulle replied with, Mon Dieu, I've got enough men, and as far as warships, there are enough French vessels in British ports to get the job done. All I need from you is air support. This was de Gaulle being de Gaulle, but leave it to a British official in the Foreign Office to note the French general was dwelling in a world apart from that which most of us are called upon to inhabit. And with that, his offer, his suggestion, that is de Gaulle's, was rejected. Madagascar would have to see after itself. But then Pearl Harbor came, and the British were suddenly worried about being able to get into the Indian Ocean. Yet it was the Jewish people of Europe that should have been concerned. Perhaps Japan wanted Madagascar. Perhaps they did not. But the Nazis certainly did. And why? to place all of the Jews there to finally have an answer to the Jewish question. This was not a solution limited to the Nazis. They were just willing to carry it out. Many in Europe and Britain felt that this was an acceptable solution to the world's problem of Jews. France, before the war, had already thought about sending their 10,000 French Jews to the island. In fact, this Madagascar plan was first seriously discussed in 1939, when Poland was occupied, and Berlin suddenly found itself with many more Jews to deal with. 
Thus, Berlin revived their Madagascar plan and talked it over when France fell in the summer of 1940. Further, Franz Rademacher, who worked in the German Foreign Office, offered up his opinion that France should give up the island to Germany and that should be in the peace treaty. And Franz said he would go to Madagascar himself to offer up a better plan about the Jews. So far, he, just by looking at a map and talking to people, declared that the port city of Atsirana would become a German naval base and the larger Diego Suarez area would be a German military zone. Of course, Jews would not be allowed to enter there. And, of course, a few military air bases along the island to protect it. And he selected Atsirab, the island's third largest city, to be his administrative center. And Sarab means the place of much salt in Malagasy. Located about 80 miles or 128 kilometers southwest of the capital, it has a cool climate with many thermal springs to help one relax. Franz also added that Heydrich Himmler would administer the island but have Jews working under him. As one can imagine, the European Jews were none too happy about this plan, yet they did not know of the alternative. Such was Hitler's desire to rid the world of Jewry. But there was one thing that Franz left out on purpose. Given the poor climate and growing conditions, the Jews would soon find themselves unable to produce enough food to sustain all their people. And that was the idea, for these people to die out. And one more idea has to be considered, ghastly as it is. If Madagascar had been taken over by the Nazis and the Jews shipped there, if gas chambers had been set up, then the horror of the Holocaust could have been much worse. It may have taken the Allies even longer to get the shipping and men together to leave the main fighting to liberate the island. And how many more Jews would have been killed by the time that was done? A bold plan indeed by Franz. Hence, the Madagascar plan was the Nazis' final solution, for now. That is, until Britain's hold on the high seas could not be broken. And when the island finally fell under British control, Berlin had to come up with Plan B. Exportation became extermination. 